Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 14 this evening. Matthew chapter 14. I'm actually going to read for our opening reading the end of chapter 13, verses 53 through 58. Find Matthew chapter 14, and we'll read the paragraph that immediately proceeds. Look at several chapters in Matthew tonight, take more of a broad brush approach, and then, as I mentioned, we have the uh, prayer and singing service next Sunday night, and then Dale, since he's now licensed to preach, he's, he's authorized to preach regularly in, in our churches, and he had the desire to do a short series of sermons, we're going to give him several Sunday nights in the summer, he's going to take us through the book of Jonah, so we'll begin that the first Sunday evening in June. So, for this evening, we'll be in Matthew before we take a break from it for a little while. And let me read chapter 13, verses 53 to 58. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Amen. We'll end our reading there. Let's ask for God's blessing. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your mercies towards us. Again, the, the beauty of your word, the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of the Spirit, the privilege of assembling with God's people this evening. And thank you for folks coming to hear the word and worship you and fellowship with one another. It's a blessing. And I give you my thanks and Lord, we look to you for our help in making sense of your word and in knowing how to follow the Lord Jesus. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Most of the events of Matthew chapters 14 through 18 are not unique to Matthew. So many of them, most of them in fact, they occur in Mark's gospel, even in a similar order. If you're able to ever do a Bible study and lay out the, the corresponding passages, you'll see a lot of similar order and events between Mark and Matthew, especially in these chapters here. Now, a few years ago, we went through Mark on the Lord's Day morning, verse by verse, took it uh, section by section, and we looked at it in detail. And since that is in recent memory, I don't want to go over the same events again. A lot of when we focused here in Matthew, we zeroed in on the unique passages in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount or the parables of chapter 13 that we considered a few weeks ago. So instead, I want to look at the broad sweep of Matthew. I want to look at several of these chapters at once tonight. And I want us to see how he presents these events and how that advances his main ideas, how that advances his picture of Jesus. What is it Matthew wants us to take away from his gospel presentation? And we can answer that big picture in the lesson tonight. 
Now, in our previous study, two weeks ago, we overviewed the parables in Matthew 13. And those parables are aimed at explaining why people respond to Jesus in different ways. Well-known parable of the sower, the wheat and the weeds, etc. And one common theme that we saw in the parables was God's kingdom is truly come. Yet it starts small and apparently fails and yet will ultimately triumph. God's kingdom is here, Jesus says, and though it's starting small, though it looks like failure, it will eventually triumph. So now is the time, if you're hearing his words, now is the time to submit to the king and enter his kingdom. It'll take faith, yes, it'll take faith to believe the kingdom's really there. But it's not a heretical faith, it's right in line with what God has been promising in the Old Testament, and Jesus is drawing that out. For people to see, for those with eyes to see and ears to hear. And as Jesus makes clear in chapter 13, all those parables, it is only those whom God enables to see. It is only those whom God opens their eyes and opens their ears that will make that right response. And so while the parables instruct his disciples, while the parables instruct those who have that disposition, they continue to blind and alienate those who do not. And so as we come to chapters 14 through 18, we see that division continuing to intensify. We'll start to see the parting of the ways, the different directions that groups go when they make these different responses to Jesus. I heard a teacher one time make the illustration, if a rocket takes off and goes in a certain direction, when you change the trajectory of that rocket by just a degree, you won't see it at the beginning. The more it climbs into the sky, you see just how differently the two paths are. That's what we're seeing here in Matthew 14 through 18. That the more Jesus journeys to Jerusalem, the more intense the hostility becomes. And the more those paths begin to diverge. There is progressive polarization in these chapters. Between those who confess Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Between those who recognize in Him the identity of Israel's God. That He's come to save His people from their sins. There's a difference between those who see that and those who do not. So let's overview the chapters and let's watch as the divide intensifies. And tonight we'll organize it under three sets of contracts. So first you have contrasting stories. Two sets of contrasting stories, beginning with what we read in chapter 13 and spilling over into most, if not all, yes, all of chapter 14. So let's start with the stories that emphasize the negative. First, you've got the prophet without honor here at the end of chapter 13. Before we're even out of the chapter on the parables, we read that Jesus comes to his hometown of Capernaum and he teaches the people in the synagogue. So the setting has changed. He's laid out the parables and now he's moved to a new location. And as he teaches there in the synagogue, the people, they're amazed at his teaching. They're amazed at his power. And yet, they take offense at him. It's like they can't deny what they're seeing, but they just don't know what to do with it. They don't have a category for someone like Jesus. And why might that be? Well, this is his hometown. And so they consider him to be just an ordinary person. 
And here Jesus makes that well-known statement. A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. He had grown up there. They thought they knew him. They couldn't see beyond what was immediately visible. Didn't have those eyes of faith as we considered this morning. And so they do not recognize Jesus for who he is. And the story then concludes there in verse 58. He did not do many miracles. Because of their lack of faith. It's like his response to the Pharisees. You demand a sign, I'll only give you one sign. The sign of Jonah, which it'll take faith for you to behold that as well. You don't believe that I am who I claim to be, then I will not do many miracles. I won't appeal to that unbelief and try to win it over by further signs. And then as we come into chapter 14, we have another negative story where we have the beheading of John the Baptist. This is even worse, we might say, than what we read at the end of chapter 13. So, word of Jesus' miracles reaches Herod the Tetrarch. And he wonders, is this John the Baptist risen from the dead? And put yourself in the position of someone reading this story for the first time. The last time you heard about John the Baptist, he was very much alive. He was in prison, mind you. But he was hearing about what Jesus was doing. This is the passage where he was wondering, are you really the one who is to come? He sent word to Jesus, and Jesus encouraged him in his faith. Now we start reading chapter 14, and we find out John the Baptist has died. And so Matthew has to kind of go back and tell the story in reverse almost. He tells the well-known story of Herodias' daughter dancing for John the Baptist and requesting his head on a silver platter. And we see the divide intensifying. Why? Because John, the forerunner of Jesus, testifying about Jesus, he has died on account of his loyalty to God. Many are unbelieving, and those who are loyal are facing death. So we have this negative response, this negative experience with reference to Jesus. But on the other hand, we will also find now stories that testify positively to who he is and how people may behold what he is doing. So if we had negative stories there in the prophet without honor and the beheading of John the Baptist. As we come to verse 13 of chapter 14, we find the feeding of the 5,000. And this is a well-known miracle story. In fact, it's the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. Now, what particular lens does Matthew put on it? Well, one of the themes we've seen throughout Matthew is how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament institutions. Fulfilled the prophecies in the opening chapters. He's a new Israel going through the waters of the Jordan and then out into the wilderness to be tempted. He's a new Moses giving his law for the people. Well, when we come to the feeding of the 5,000, it's great in and of itself. It's a miracle story. It tells us great things about Jesus' divine identity. But for the observant Jewish reader, and Matthew very much has Jewish readers in mind, it would also recall two Old Testament events. First, you've got the Passover, the annual meal that symbolizes Israel's redemption from Egypt. When you think about meals in the Bible, this is one of the main ones that would come to mind. Now here's Jesus serving a meal miraculously to 5,000 people. He wants them to think the time of your redemption has come. 
And then, of course, after Passover, what happens? That's the second event. How God fed the Israelites with manna as they journeyed through the wilderness. Again, a miraculous feeding for the people of God. Well, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus, he is Israel's Lord. He is the Yahweh, the Jehovah of the Old Testament. And in feeding his people this Passover meal, he's saying, I've come to enact this new exodus. I've come to enact this definitive deliverance. And I've come to lead you out of spiritual exile and to feed you with heavenly food. And as you enjoy, as you receive my words, as you receive my deeds, so you will enjoy those benefits. And in many ways, it's like a parable. It's like what we saw in Matthew 13. Because you've got to have eyes to see. You've got to have ears to hear. And all you have to do is flip over and read John 6 to know that many people ate that meal and didn't see the ultimate significance. And yet for those with the eyes to see, Jesus is the Lord coming to deliver and feed his people. And then immediately after the story of the feeding of the 5,000, if you look at verse 22, and if you have headings in your Bible, it helps to follow uh, the flow here. We read about Jesus walking on the water. Now, this isn't the first miracle in Matthew's gospel involving water. Back in chapter 4, Jesus calmed the storm. And that had divine implications. According to Psalm 89.9, only God rules and calms the seas. And when he calmed the sea, the disciples asked, who is this? And that's almost Matthew's way of saying, yeah, who do you think this is? Well, now after the feeding of the 5,000 in the night, Jesus comes walking to the disciples over the water. And they think he's a ghost. They're afraid that Jesus calms them with these words. Take courage, verse 28. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And don't miss that little phrase. It is I. Language intended to recall Exodus chapter 3. The words at the burning bush. I am who I am. It is I, Jesus says. Recognize that the God of the covenant, the God of the burning bush, He is now here with you to deliver you. The one who delivered you from Egypt and led you through the Red Sea. Now He's here to deliver you from your ultimate enemy, sin and Satan. And if you will see that He is that Lord, the Lord incarnate, then you will benefit from that deliverance. So notice it's contrasting stories. Matthew says he stuck those two groups of two right beside each other. Say, look how different things are with reference to Jesus. <laughs> but we come now into chapter 15. And now we see contrasting responses. Different approaches to who Jesus is. How then do people respond to who Jesus is? Well, first, we see the effort to keep unclean things out. I'm going to phrase this as the negative response. First, you see the continuing effort by the Pharisees to keep unclean things out. In the first 20 verses of chapter 15, you have another dispute with the Pharisees where they object to Jesus' disciples eating with unwashed hands. See it in the opening verses of chapter 15, verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? 
they don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, I know we're, we're Christian readers and, and we're used to viewing the Pharisees in a negative light. And there's a reason for that. that that's often how they're cast in the Gospels, that they oppose Jesus. But just keep in mind, if you lived in Israel in the time of Jesus, the Pharisees, for the most part, were very well regarded by many of the people. And you could even see from a certain angle how the Pharisees had a good intent. Why would the Pharisees come up with so many of these traditions? Well, they were concerned to sanctify all of life. They wanted every part of life to be sanctified to the honor, perhaps, and the glory of God. They would read in the Old Testament of the level of purity demanded of the priest. And they would say, well, we could extend that purity to all the people. Then God would be pleased with us. Then God would return. And then God would bless us. But what Jesus opens our eyes to see is that by extending those purity requirements, by developing these human traditions, the function of the law is actually serving to blind the Pharisees to the greater principles of God's law. And that's why he goes into this long discussion in verses 3 through 9, where he starts referring to other areas of their tradition and says, do you not see how these traditions allow you to actually break God's commands. You have a tradition with reference to uh, how you treat your wealth and how you treat your parents. And it actually ends up going against the very intent of the original law of God. To honor your father and your mother. And so to bring it back then to the food discussion, just so we don't miss the point that Jesus is trying to make. He says in verse 11, makes this declaration. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. But what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. And let's get down to verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Now notice Jesus' tactic. This is very interesting. It starts with an argument about tradition. Washing with unwashed hands. And Jesus could have simply said, Hey, that's a human tradition. The priestly rules don't apply. Don't follow that. Don't worry about it. But Jesus not only dismisses the tradition, but then takes things one step further. He starts talking about laws that God has ordained. Ceremonial laws concerning what defiles a person and he makes the point it is not what goes into you that defiles you which is kind of what the ceremonial laws are saying well how then do we understand jesus how does he respect in the old testament again not coming to abolish it but to fulfill it we would need to conclude that the purpose of the food laws was to teach you something god wanted us to learn that there is such a thing as clean and unclean in this world there are things that can defile you. And if you are defiled, you need God to cleanse you. That was the lesson that God was driving at with those food laws. Now the purpose of God's laws was not to reduce impurity to something merely external. And something that you might actually be able to avoid if you just follow this system perfectly. No, when you set up a system trying to avoid a merely external purity that leads you down a road that is vastly different from the way of the gospel. 
where Jesus wants us to see, look at the overall truth. There is such a thing as clean and unclean, but it's coming from in here. And if you're going to be cleansed of your impurities, you need God to give you a new heart. So Jesus teaches us how to understand the Old Testament. And and Mark, under the inspiration of the Lord, but Mark doesn't miss the implication of Jesus' statements. And in the other gospel, in Mark's gospel, Mark adds this comment. In saying this, Jesus declared, all foods clean. Not only is Jesus explaining us how the law should work, he is actually going one step further and saying, okay, now those food laws no longer apply. Because Jesus is superior to the Mosaic legislation. He anticipates this new covenant that he, as the new and greater Moses, will inaugurate with his death. This is the exact idea that Matthew has been developing. Now, I find it interesting, by the way, that Matthew, with so much interest in the Old Testament, doesn't include Mark's comment. Matthew doesn't come right out and make the same explicit comment that Jesus declared all foods clean. Maybe because he had a Jewish audience in mind, he just knew such a direct statement might have just been a little too much for them to handle. So he kind of just puts the seeds there and lets them follow where they go and maybe the fruit will emerge uh, in its own time. But the main point is clear. Israel's religious leaders, they're missing the gospel. Why? Because they are overly focused on keeping out. Keep the unclean things out. And doing so by means of their tradition. So what approach does Jesus take? It's the radical, it's the exact opposite. In the next story, we find Jesus letting unclean things in. In the very next story, beginning there at verse 21, Jesus is approached by a Gentile woman, a woman of Syro. Phoenicia, the, the, the region of Tyre and Sidon. Verse 22, she's identified as a Canaanite woman from that vicinity. And the end result is going to be Jesus is going to invite this woman to share the identity of the people of God. So let's see how that story develops. As I've already said, Jesus leaves the encounter with the Pharisees. And he goes up to the region of Tyre and Sidon. That's a very heavy Gentile area. And this Canaanite woman from that area, she comes to Jesus and she asks Jesus to cure her demon-possessed daughter. And shockingly, because we're so used to Jesus just reaching out his hand and curing, or even curing people from a distance. We've already seen that in Matthew. But shockingly, Jesus doesn't say anything. And the disciples, perhaps trying to interpret that silence, they respond with a typical ethnocentric and chauvinistic attitude of their day. Verse 23, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. Jesus, this woman is bothering us. Will you get rid of her? And interestingly, Jesus seems initially to concur. He says in verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And so the woman comes, she now kneels before him and she begs, verse 25, Lord, help me only to be further rebuffed. By Jesus. Verse 26, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And that is when the true quality of this woman's faith emerges. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. 
Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And here we see that no doubt the whole point of Jesus' dialogue, the whole reason he does this back and forth, is so he can draw out of her this great faith so that everyone can see it. In verse 28, he declares, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And what Jesus is wanting us to see is that what the Jews are being offered, what men are being offered, is also being offered to this Gentile woman. And that is a place at God's table. A place with the people of God. A place of enjoying the benefits of the kingdom of God. And it comes as a powerful contrast to the attitude of the religious leaders and the very preceding story. And before we go then to the last section, almost as an appendix, you have at the very end of chapter 15, the feeding of the 4,000. And the feeding of 5,000, and you had the feeding of the 4,000. And this probably reinforces the theme that we just saw in the story of the Canaanite woman. So this crowd is most likely majority Gentile. So it's almost a way of saying just as Jesus came for the Jews, just as he came to be the new Moses for them, well, he's also come in the flesh for the Gentiles. And he offers the bread of life to them as well. So that's probably the reason you have such a similar story repeated only a few verses later. Again, what is Jesus saying? The unclean things are in here. And you need God to cleanse it. Don't, don't just try to keep those unclean things out. No, let the unclean things in, the Gentiles, that God can give them new hearts, and you get a new heart so that you may be pure. So let's come then to the end. Contrasting decisions. We've seen contrasting stories, contrasting responses. Let's bring it to a verdict. What are the contrasting decisions? Well, in chapter 16, in the first four verses, once again, the Pharisees come and they demand a sign. Jesus makes a very brief return to the Jewish area of Galilee. So he's been in a Gentile area, returns to Galilee there in the north. And from this point, he will go on to Caesarea Philippi. So that, again, this is moving away from Jewish territory. Uh, we see that in verse 13. And then beginning his journey south to Jerusalem. And that, of course, brings us eventually to the end of Matthew's gospel. So my point in this whole geographical list being, this is Jesus' last meeting with the Pharisees and Sadducees in Galilee, which is where Matthew has concentrated all of his attention so far, Jesus' ministry in the north, in Galilee. And he's interacted with the religious leaders there. This is the last chance, last time he speaks to them. And what kind of decision do they make regarding Jesus? They ask for another sign. And we just saw that a few chapters ago. Have they learned nothing? Have they seen nothing? And so Jesus just repeats what he said the last time. They demanded a sign. Verse 4, no sign will be given you except the sign of Jonah. But then, in verses 5 through 12, we have the other side of the coin. What kind of decision will the disciples make? Well, when Jesus and the disciples cross the lake, they forget to bring bread. And bread, that's been a frequent theme throughout chapters 14 to 16. We saw the feeding of the 5,000. 
The Canaanite woman appealed for the crumbs from the table. We had the feeding of the 4,000. And now we have this. They go on a journey and the disciples forget to take bread. So this is where Jesus says, all right, we've had all these miracles. Now let me show you the lesson. Let me apply the lesson. Let me tell you what you should take away from all these miracles. We see it in verse 6. When the disciples realize they forgot to pack food, Jesus gives this warning. Be careful. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, interestingly, the disciples at first, they interpret this as some kind of rebuke for their forgetfulness. But Jesus explains in verses 8 through 11, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000? And how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What should the disciples have learned from these two feeding miracles? Well, just on a very basic level, they should have known that Jesus can supply food, right? He's fed thousands. If they forget it, it's going to be okay. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. Your heavenly Father will take care of you. But on an even greater level, they should recognize that those feeding miracles, they supply the necessary evidence that Jesus is who he claims to be. And should focus their attention on what he has come to do. To be Israel's salvation. To satisfy us with himself. And that is a lesson the Pharisees refused to accept. I mean, it's almost as if Jesus is sitting there in the boat and he's startled out of a daydream. What? Food? <laughs> Who cares about food? Be on guard against the toxic cynicism. Of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Their minds are closed. But blessed are you. If my Father in heaven opened your eyes to see who I really am. And to believe in me. And to join me in my mission. And don't miss this friends. In a rare moment of insight. The disciples get it. Verse 12 reads. Then they understood. That he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And in the next section, when we pick this back up next time, we'll see Peter make that representative confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Here's what I want you to take away this evening. I give you these three in closing. First, hold on to your faith in Jesus. It is worth it to believe in the Savior and the Father. And as you follow him, just make sure he is central to your understanding of the Christian faith. Look at the stories we've looked at tonight. He's always the central figure. The problem with the other characters is they fail to see who Jesus really is. They have other concerns. And those concerns blind them to hearing Jesus' message. It can be the traditions of men. It can be a focus on food, too much materialism, too much human tradition. Whatever it is, they, they miss Jesus. So when you pray, when you read the word, just ask God, open my eyes. Help me to see Jesus 
in all his truth? How many see him in all his beauty? How many see what he and his kingdom are really about? And how I can follow And secondly then, embrace the welcome of Jesus. You know, we go through these stories and maybe it's a little discouraging. Oh, there's just so much opposition. Well, you know, despite all the hard-heartedness in these chapters, what did we see? Right beside it. Mercy. Inclusion. Jews and Gentiles in the thousands being welcomed by Jesus to his miraculous meal. This Canaanite woman, she eats the children's bread. And that's the point. It isn't just, oh, okay, you want crumbs, or you get crumbs. No, it's Jesus' way of saying, okay, you get a full place at the table too. You get to eat the children's food. And even the disciples, they're patiently instructed by Jesus. They come to understand his message. So sit at Jesus' feet. Learn from him. And don't think that such access, well, that's just for a select few. That's just for the privileged people that get to be close to God. No, Jesus invites you into his family to sit at his feet and learn. And so then, of course, the final takeaway, beware then of any false teaching that acts like a parasite on God's truth. You know, Jesus warned the disciples against the yeast of the Pharisees. And the Sadducees, he, he utilizes yeast here in a negative fashion. And he says, you know, the Pharisees, their false teaching, their unbelief, it, it just corrupts God's truth. Just as their traditions allow them to get around, to circumvent God's commands. And just make sure that as we read the words, we listen for the voice of Jesus, that we beware of any ideas, any false teaching that just gets attached to God's commands, but then leads us ultimately away. From the things that God really cares about. Sometimes certain ideas get so attached to Christian truths. They get so interwoven with the Christian faith. And when we stop seeing where God's truth ends and human ideas begin. And the best antidote for that is to give yourself to diligently studying God's word. And asking God, as I've already said, to open your eyes so that you can see what God is saying in truth in his word. That we would be disciples of his kingdom. And not in any way servants or slaves to other people's ideas and aims and intentions. And the good news, friends, good news, is that Jesus promises to be the teacher. And to open our eyes and to give us the truth we need as we sit at his feet. So let's ask God to help us continually do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise, the, it's a warning and a promise, but, but ultimately a promise that you open eyes, you teach, you reveal, not flesh and blood, but the Father in heaven. So we would beg, we would ask that you be our teacher and that you'd help us continually see the glorious beauty and good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of his truth, the grace that he gives, and so that we would sit at his feet and become learners and obey everything that you have taught us to do. And that is part of your commission to help us to do it. Forgive us for when we fail. And thank you for your mercies and your truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.